0: Hi, this is Steve Hargadown and welcome to the Learning 2.0 conference. This is our final day of five days. If you've been having fun like I have, you're probably exhausted. Uh, It's really delightful to have Sugana Mitra here. Sugana, thank you for taking the time today.
1: Uh, Thanks for inviting me.
0: Thanks to Follett and Intel for sponsorship of the conference, and thanks to Mighty Bell, Blackboard Collaborate, Tigni at Global, EdWeb, and Edutopia for support and promotion. Uh, Sugata, I have been reading your Kindle book. I think it's called a Kindle Short, Kindle Single, yes. uh, Beyond the Hole in the Wall, Discover the Power of Self-Organized Learning. I remember first hearing about you in the hole in the wall experiment and kind of feeling goosebumps. And I will tell you that reading this Beyond the Hole in the Wall book has just been a fabulous experience for me. I think there are many of us who feel that this connection to you uh, vicariously for the work that you're doing. And we want to thank you for that. So I'm going to let you go ahead and start. And when you need me, just call on me.
1: Okay. uh, Welcome, uh, everybody. Um, I can see you only as a list of names, and uh, and I notice with some surprise that some of you are um, well. It's it's pretty late in the in the night for you, so thank you very much for for staying up. Uh, I'm going to uh, well, I'm going to take you through a. A a whole set of things that I've found in the last, uh, you know, I guess about maybe almost 20 years of looking at how children learn. And, uh, you know, you might then think that, okay, so you're looking at this process called learning in children, and you're looking at it for 20 years, so you end up finding out what it's all about but that's not how it works because in those 20 years how children learn has also changed so you know the thing that you're studying is also continuously changing Um, so at some stage I realized that there isn't one answer to how children learn Uh, it's, it's a continuously variable answer What you have to then uh, look at is in what direction is that variation and kind of run with it. And and when I say we, I mean uh, people who are interested in children, interested in children's learning, Uh, we ourselves need to continuously re-examine our practice and uh, move along with it. So uh, even what I'm going to tell you today about uh, the most recent of these findings um uh, could very well change tomorrow well but let's start with our story in order to to look at what might happen to learning in the future i guess it's not a bad idea to look at uh, where did schooling come from and if you look at the history of schooling you find that it's actually very old it started i don't know maybe 5 or 6000 years ago it's not older than that and, uh, but there are very, very little uh, written documentation uh, about how those schools were run. Uh, the most recent uh, historical evidence comes to us from Greece, from around 500 BC or so, where we hear about Plato's Academy. But uh, the the most detailed accounts of schooling and what should happen in school and how it should be done comes to us uh, from uh, the last of the biggest uh, empires on this planet, the British Empire. Now if you look at uh, the picture of the British Empire and imagine that that whole uh, area um, is to be governed from that tiny little uh, you know island in the center. Uh, it's, it becomes quite obvious that the administrative uh, problems must have been absolutely humongous. I mean, you would suddenly have a requirement for you know, 200 soldiers in one part of the world, uh, a, a governor in another part of the world, uh, a whole lot of uh, clerks in another part of the world, and so on. Uh, you need a reliable system which can produce and meet these demands of manpower, The Victorians were good engineers, so they invented a system. It's a system that was so well engineered that it lasts until today. And many of you, many of us listening to all this are indeed products of that system. However, we must realize that the Victorian system was producing learners or preparing learners for a requirement. That requirement was essentially for identical people. Now the Victorians, good engineers that they were designed this system well and they managed to produce well pretty much identical people. Everybody got 50 out of 100 in everything. If you got 90 out of 100 in one thing and 20 out of 100 in another thing, then you failed. But the age of empires passed. And uh, you know people began to, to look at the system and say, what, what do we need now, now that the age of empires is gone? Well, the action moved to North America with the Industrial Revolution. The captains of the industry looked at the Victorian system and said, wow. This is fantastic because we, too, need identical people. Not only do we need identical people to make things, we also need identical people to buy things because identical people will want identical things and identical things can be produced in assembly lines with identical people. So the Victorian system persisted. However, the empires are done with The wars, well, they get fought once in a while. Um, The industry, the manufacturing industry, is moving east. So then, what are we left with? For whom are the schools producing these identical people? The children who were going through these systems could sense, many times in history, that they were being molded into little boxes and periodically they have said to the rest of society, we don't want to be identical. If you trace it back, the first of these beginnings of dissidence was in 19th century Bengal where a movement started where people said, men and women, We don't want to be identical. We want to dress the way we like. We want to sing and dance the way we like. And then, about 100 years later, the same voice of dissidence was heard in the United States of America, where again a generation took to the streets saying, we don't want to be identical. In both cases, the system jailed them, shot them, did all sorts of things to them, but the voices uh, had been raised. So that's the history a very brief history of schooling on this planet. And what about now? What will happen to learning in our age? In order to look at that story or in order to to try and predict what might happen we need to understand a few Precepts. Schooling is outdated. As we just saw, it has a, basically a military and industrial background. It's, it's not needed. It's outdated. Children can sense this. When they sense it, they get more and more detached from schooling. And country after country reports, why are the children not engaging with school? Well, nothing's wrong with the children. Something is wrong with the system. A little more about our world when I was a youngster when I was a kid we used to have a machine which many of you probably may not even have heard of it was called a radiogram a radiogram was a huge piece of furniture it you know it, it used to be kept in the living room it could play music using a record player on one side It could play the radio um, it uh, People used to be very proud of having a radiogram. My mother had one, and she used to call our neighbors and say, look, here is my radiogram. Now, you don't have a radiogram. Who are you? Well, the radiogram became smaller in size when the tape recorder got invented. And now you could actually carry the tape recorder, a very large one, but you could carry it from room to room. And then the tape recorder shrank further when the Japanese invented the Walkman. Now you could put your radiogram in your pocket. But it didn't end there. The Walkman lasted for a few years and it transformed itself into the MP3 player. Now the radiogram was so tiny that you could actually lose it and, and you could go around uh, you know, looking at the pavement and say, why did I drop my radiogram? But that wasn't the end of the story either. What happened to the MP3 player is even more fantastic. The MP3 player disappeared. Yes, I, I mean what I say. It disappeared. It disappeared into a string of zeros and ones and went into the cloud. Now you could take a million different devices and you could have all your music on all of them whenever you want it, from wherever you want it, etc. It's a good example of a physical object not just becoming smaller and cheaper, but disappearing, of vanishing. We call it dematerialization. There are other institutions that have also quietly dematerialized and are dematerializing. The big example are the banks. They still have their huge buildings to show us that they have a lot of money. But, unlike the past, they tell their customers don't come here. Work off the cloud. Money itself Is dematerializing. I think in a few years time we won't need to print all that paper anymore. We actually don't need to do it right now, but we have to get the systems a little bit more fine-tuned before our little plastic cards, uh, which itself will, I suppose, dematerialize one day, but at the moment our little plastic cards can uh, replace our entire billfold with all its money. So Banks and money are dematerializing. Stocks and shares have already dematerialized. In fact, they use a term in India, I remember when they dematerialized, they call it demat. So if you had paper shares, you send them off to somebody and he demats it for you and you no longer have those pieces of paper anymore, but you have strings of zeros and ones in your computer which tells you how many shares you have. So in this, in this world where institutions are dematerializing, what happens to learning? So take a look at that, often in conferences I get all kinds of reactions to that statement really. Unfortunately here I can't see you and I can't actually hear you either. Um, unless you raise a hand of course, but um, with broadband access, imagine that imagine that in these glasses, I had a way by which I could overlay a web page. How do you know that I am Sugata and I am talking to you out of my brain? How do you know I am not somebody else? who has photoshopped my page, my face, and is reading off a web page. How would you catch me? Well, you would say, during Q&A, we'll catch you. But can you really? Imagine a situation where I'm pretending to be uh, an accountant. And I open a little shop and I say, this is an accountant's shop. And actually, I've never been to college and I've never learned accounting. So somebody comes in there and says, uh, I have a problem with my balance sheet. And I stare down and my fingers move just a little bit. And about uh, 30 seconds later, I say, oh, oh, a a balance sheet. Um, Yes, yes, I think I can sort that out for you. Can you leave your current balance sheet with me? and come back tomorrow. So you leave your current balance sheet with me and you go away. I get onto Google. I get on to you know, news groups. I get on live chat with accountants. I do emailing. I go into Ask Jeeves and I do all sorts of things. By tomorrow, I have a average sort of answer to your question. So you go away and say, this fellow, you know, he's not really a great accountant, but he's all right. But Is that really pretense? Because on the first day when you said, I have a problem with my balance sheet, I was googling balance sheet to find out what that is. On the second day, I don't need to do that because now I know what that is. So a month of pretending to be an accountant, and then people start to say, you know that fellow well he's a he's a mediocre kind of accountant but he gets the job done i continue pretending for a year i get away with it for the second year in the third year people say you know that guy mitra he's a bloody good accountant so could it be that by pretending to be educated using google you would become what you pretend if that is so, we have a completely different take on learning. But let's look at another side of the story. There are children in many disadvantaged places in the world, and most of them don't have good teachers. I'll give you, an, I'll give you a couple of examples. As you go further away from New Delhi, India, into rural India, avoiding all the built-up places, the small cities, and so on. If you take measurements of English, math, and science, which is what I did in 2007, you find you get a curve like this, a steady downward decline. But all the schools are identical. They have the same amount of money. They have the same number of teachers, similar students. So what explains why the quality of schooling keeps going down? Well, the answer is that teachers, as they get further and further away from Delhi, want to migrate towards Delhi. Why? Because the standard of living is better. Teachers are human beings. They want good standards of health, of safety, of entertainment. And the teacher who is 100 kilometers away from Delhi says, you know, it's really too too long to go to Delhi all the time. By the time you uh, get to a point where the teacher is 250 kilometers away from Delhi, she says to you, anywhere but here. What do we do about that? So what happens is that teachers in remote areas try to migrate towards a better standard of living. Who succeeds? The best ones, leaving the poorer teachers behind. And that seemed to be what the explanation for this curve was. When I went to the UK in 2006, I thought I would not see this problem because the UK is a developed economy. Uh, The difference between rural and urban is very, very little. Sometimes the quality of life in rural Britain is better than in urban Britain. So I thought, well, I won't find this problem of teachers trying to migrate. So I looked at the GCSE results you know GCSE is the school final examinations the general certificate of secondary education and I noticed that it wasn't uniform at all some schools were very good and some were very bad what explains this in a developed country like Britain I looked for a correlation and very quickly found one In England There is a system called council housing. Council housing is subsidized housing for poor people. You know, people with disabilities, people with alcoholism, people who don't have jobs, that kind of thing. There are some places where you have lots of council houses and some places where you have few. So you can work out a density of council housing. If you plot the density of council housing against the GCSE results, you get the same downward graph as I had got in India. And if you were to go to these high council housing density areas, you would notice the streets are dirty, there's graffiti on the wall, there's trash on the ground. And if you talk to the primary school teachers, they would, like their Indian counterparts, say, you know, this place is really not very safe. I love the children, but I wish I could go and live in a safer place. Teacher migration causes the same problem there again. So it's an ironic problem. Children in disadvantaged areas are the ones who need good teachers the most. And they're the ones who never get it. How do we solve that problem? Well, I faced this problem way back 13 years ago in New Delhi where I was uh, uh, teaching people, basically I was making courses for people to become software uh, engineers. And these were expensive courses um, attended by rich people's children. Just outside our offices was a large sprawling urban slum with lots of children. And I used to think to myself, how do I know that these children won't make as good a, you know, a, a, a software developer as uh, anybody else. So I decided to try an experiment. No teacher would go into a slum. So what I decided to do was to give the children a computer. Now, you can't just leave a computer you know, on the street in a slum. So I built myself a do-it-yourself ATM machine, like a bank, about three feet off the ground. And I turned it on and left it there. And what you see on your screen, is a picture of the first day at what the press called the hole in the wall. Eight hours later my colleagues came and said, you know those children, they're browsing. So I said what? Well, that's not, How can that be possible? I mean they don't go to school, they barely go to school, they don't learn any English so how could they be browsing? And uh, everybody said, you know, then one of your students must have been passing by and showed them how to use the mouse. I said, "Yeah, that's possible." And I repeated the experiment. This time in a really far away village, about 300-400 kilometers away from Delhi, uh, a place so remote that the chances of a passing software developer would be, you know, very very small. Um, so uh, I I did a similar experiment there and. When I went back there three months later, I found children playing games on the computer. And when they saw me, they said, oh, we need a faster processor, and we need a better mouse. And I said, wow, how did you know all that? And they said to me, you know, you left us a machine which works only in English, so we taught ourselves English in order to use it. I was astonished. This was the first time that the word taught ourselves kind of stuck in my mind. I repeated the experiment many, many times and over a period of about five years discovered that groups of children can teach themselves to use computers and the internet in about nine months. Just by, well, you could call it trial and error, I would call it self-organized learning. So these were the conclusions of the early 2000s, 2002, 2003, that groups of children can learn to operate computers and use the internet by themselves. In the process, teaching themselves a little English as well. So I naturally got curious about what else they could teach themselves. And I started experimenting with other subjects I experimented with physics, I experimented with pronunciation, I experimented with English, with algebra. Uh, my colleagues started experimenting and there is a whole body of published work now um, which you'll find on my website uh, which says that groups of children seem to be able to do all of these things using the internet by themselves provided you let them work in groups. So what's this about groups? It looked as the groups of children using the internet can achieve educational objectives on their own. When I came to England and said this, people said, well, but how far can it go? I mean, are you talking about simple objectives? Are you talking about everything? Um, How far will it go? I didn't have an answer to this question, so I uh, designed an experiment to answer it. It was an experiment designed to fail can tamil speaking children from a village in india teach themselves the biotechnology of dna replication in english from a street side computer on their own of course not <laughs> so off i went i looked for a village um, i found a village called Kuppam in in the southern uh, part of india uh, a village where i had groups of about 10, 12-year-olds, all Tamil speaking. Uh, they had no clue about biotechnology. Obviously, they knew nothing about genetics. Nobody in the village did. None of the teachers did. I had given them three, uh, two roadside computers to play with, and they were pretty good at playing games on those computers. Into those computers, I downloaded material and biotechnology, and I said to them, well, try this. It's It's not really easy. It's all in English and it's complicated stuff but it's very interesting. The children said, how will we understand this? This is terrible. I mean, it's full of chemistry. It's full of all sorts of things. And I said, well, I don't know. I don't know how you'll understand it. And anyway, I'm going away. So I left them for two months. And when I came back after two months, the children said, we've understood nothing. So I said, well... How long did it take before you thought uh, I would? We, you can't understand this? And they said, no, we look at it every single day. So I said, you mean you don't understand what you're looking at, but you look at it every day, what for? And they said, well, one of them raised their hand and said, apart from the fact that improper replication of the DNA molecule causes genetic disease, we have understood nothing else. So that was my introduction to a completely different world. I had pre-tested the children before we started the experiment and they had got a statistical zero. When I tested them again after two months, I saw an educational impossibility. Zero to 30% in two months on their own, in English, on a roadside computer, the biotechnology of DNA replication. But then I still couldn't go back to England with these results because 30% in the Victorian system is a fail. How do I get them to get another 20 marks in that village? Where will I get a teacher from? Well, I couldn't get a teacher. What I could get was a girl who was very friendly with the kids. She was 20 years old, an accountant with a local NGO. I asked her to help me. And she said, I can't help you because I don't know biotechnology and I don't know anything about computers. I don't know what these children are doing on that computer. And I said, no, use the method of the grandmother. So she said, what's that? I said, stand behind them. Whenever they do anything at all, just say, wow, that's fantastic. How did you do that? My goodness, when I was your age, I could have never done anything like that. She played that role for two more months. The scores in Kukpam jumped to 50%, same as the scores of a rich private school in Delhi with a trained biotechnology teacher. That school was my control. The children of Kukpam had caught up. I realized when I looked at this graph that there was a way to level the playing field. So I went back to England, and I started looking for grandmothers. I put out requests in newspapers saying, if you are a British grandmother, um, if you have broadband and a web camera, uh, can you give me one hour of your time per week for free? I got 200. You know, I know more British grandmothers than anyone else in the universe. (laughs) <laughs> but they're not actually all grandmothers. There are men and women, there are young men, young women, and so on. But uh, in my university, they are very fondly called the Granny Cloud. The Granny Cloud sits on the Internet, and whenever there is a school in trouble, we beam a gran using Skype. And she appears life-size inside their classroom, and she takes charge. The children love their British grannies. And the grannies, particularly the retired teachers, love the children because, you know, they've, they've taught all their lives and they miss their children and now they're back in their little village somewhere, a bit lonely perhaps, and suddenly their houses are full of the voices of children again. It's a win-win situation. So I brought the hole in the wall experiment into the classrooms of Northeastern England. How? Well, it's very simple. For those of you who are teachers, you might find this interesting. You tell the whole group of children, make yourselves into groups of four. Why groups of four? Because that seems to be the ideal number in the hole in the wall. Each group of four can use one computer and not four computers. That's very important. Otherwise, they won't discuss anything with each other. And then you give them a big question. The question has to be interesting, that's the most, that's the hardest part for the teacher is to construct a big question around the subject that she was going to teach and then leave them alone. Teachers around the world are beginning to work with souls. I've lost count of how many. Uh, I think in every continent there are a few. Uh, What is lovely is that they don't follow exactly my instructions. They adapt the whole methodology uh, of researching individually, of researching in groups, uh, uh, and they adapt that to their their teaching practice. Well, so what do I say about learning now? Well, I don't know if you're you're going to agree with me, but I think groups of children can learn anything by themselves, provided they can do three things provided they can search, read, understand, and believe. I think we've run across a self-organizing system. There are many in nature. You know, galaxies, uh, uh, nebula, the stock market, our heartbeat they're all self-organizing systems. They, uh, nobody makes them, they happen by themselves. Self-organizing systems also produce emergent behavior the appearance of things that you didn't think the system was capable of producing. I think what we are seeing in self-organized learning by children is self-organizing behavior. So this is how it works. Four or more uh, groups of children, they manage themselves using an elected police officer, one computer for each group, the granny cloud if you need it, discussion, movement, play, everything is allowed and then you give them a big question. There are no rules of discipline because, remember, we don't want identical people anymore. So the new primary curriculum, reading comprehension, information search and retrieval, and a rational system of belief. When you've searched, when you've read, when you've understood, you must be able to put it all together into your head and say, this is what I believe. it leaves us with a lot of questions that need to be answered how do you examine a connected learner what happens when the learner comes into an examination hall and he can access the internet using a device that you can't detect it will change examinations forever what does qualification mean if I can pretend to be an accountant and become one in two years what does that qualification mean anymore what is curriculum anyway is arithmetic obsolete is it necessary to be able to recite tables of numbers? Is the absence of a teacher a pedagogical tool? I seem to think so. Can cheating improve learning? The act of cheating requires discrimination. Is that helpful? Is knowing obsolete? Do you really need to know anything? Because you can find it out at the point when you need to know it in a second. And finally, will institutions dematerialize? like the banks have done? What will happen to the great big universities? In the answer to that question, perhaps, will lie the future of learning. Now, there's a little film. And I wonder if Steve can play it. It will give you an idea of, of, of what this whole thing uh, kind of looks like in Britain, where it's being experimented with. Um, uh, Steve, are you there?
0: I am. Let me put this film up. So what's going to happen is this will come up in YouTube. If it auto starts, that's terrific. If it doesn't, each of you will need to click the play. And then we'll come back to you as soon as the video is done. If for some reason you can't see the video, I'll put the link in the chat and you can watch it later on your own.
1: Val Almond and Debbie Mann are the vanguard of a revolutionary new approach Well, I guess that brings us back to the question I left you with, is knowing obsolete? And in the answer to that question, I think, will lie the future of learning. Well, that's about what I had to say. And we still have about, well, 10 or 12 minutes available to us. Um, if you have a question, and if I can navigate this system properly, then I will try to answer them. Um uh let's see. Uh Demetrius. I captured a couple uh, of questions the
0: Go ahead. Okay. Hi. Thank you so much. This was really amazing. Um so what's uh the next step? How, I mean, okay, you've tried this in the UK. Have you seen any um interest from other schools or from the government? What's uh Uh, the future for this method?
1: Well, um, uh, yeah, you know, uh, the way it happened in England was that one school called me and and said, go ahead and try something new. And I did the first of the SOLEs, the Self-Organized Learning Environment there. The teachers started talking amongst themselves. And they said, well, this is too good to be true. I mean, I wasn't doing anything. I was just sitting over there and it was all happening. So then another teacher tried and another teacher tried and then I started getting calls from nearby schools and then from all over the the, uh, county Durham up in northeastern England. So it kind of spread like a groundswell. Then I started getting calls from the southern part of England and then it spread through the whole country. I've lost count of how many teachers actually use it in what form. Then I started to get calls from conferences all around the world. And I kept insisting with the conferences that okay, I'll I'll give a lecture like I'm doing just now, but will you take me to a school so that I can show you how it's done? And they started doing that. So from you know Chile, Uruguay, Argentina, uh, Mexico, United States, um, Italy, Australia, China, everywhere, teachers started picking it up. Um, and i'm quite happy that they adapted it to their own style so a quick answer to your question where do you go from here i think uh, the easiest way to spread this is not top downwards but bottom upwards if you can start the ground cell uh, i can assure you that uh, the children will love it uh, they'll talk to their parents uh, the teachers will talk amongst themselves and uh, it tends to just grow by itself So Jackie
0: Gerstein wanted to know if there was one thing you could do to change the education system in the U.S., what would you do?
1: Um, Well, it's it's a short question, but it has a longish answer. You know, first of all, teachers sometimes say, oh, so are you trying to say we are not required? This is absolutely untrue. Teachers are the only defense the children have against the system. As long as that system doesn't change, the teachers have to stand between the children and the system, helping them to cope with the system. But then, there is something more that teachers can do. So, if you say, what is the one thing that would change U.S. education? Well, I've been going to sc- several schools here, and you know the children are terrific. The last time I did a SOLE was in uh, Kansas C- City, Kansas, in an inner city school, and I gave them uh, a, a particularly hard question. The question was, uh, what is the purpose of theater? Can you imagine these are nine-year-olds? That was a really hard question. And they gave absolutely fantastic answer. I'll just tell you one answer. One little girl came up and said, theater creates its own meaning. Now, how much better can you go? So, I'm not saying that you should do this every single day. But maybe once a week, you take a curricular topic, and do a self-organized learning session. Don't ask the administration. Just take the school principal into confidence, and all I'm asking is for one hour a week. You'll see the change almost immediately. And I'm hoping, uh, with all my fingers and toes crossed, that as teachers do this all over the world, the, the system, the examiners, the school inspectors, will one day say, Well, let's just integrate it into the system. And it's not as far away as as you think because we either have an option for the system to break and it is indeed at its breaking point or we can do something about it. So simple answer to your question. If you are dealing with children, uh, tell them my story and tell them that let's test it out. Here are a couple of computers, not one computer per head and here is a big question. Tell me the answer. We've given the microphone to
0: Jay Comfort. Go ahead. Yes, I do. This is Judith Comfort in, in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, we are a multicultural society, and uh, we are very aware of our, our colonial roots. And we're also quite paranoid about our American influences on our education system. We still have a great sense of public good. Um, the question I have is about um, is about your use of the English grannies to serve the uh, poor masses of Indian children. That would be politically incorrect in our country. My question is, why are you not using the best resources you have in India? And why are you not concerned about the uh, appropriation of British culture to India? And what are you doing to protect your own culture?
1: Yeah, well, um, I mean, again, a question which is important and I've heard it uh, said many times. Well, firstly, why is the granny cloud mostly English well because I started it in England as simple as that so uh, you, you know uh, there is no particular reason at this point in time it contains uh, retired teachers from uh, the United States from Canada from uh, uh, from Great Britain of course from the Middle East from uh, and from India um, they, uh, 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 you know uh, Indian grannies do just as good a job but uh, but having said that uh What I have noticed is that if the granny is considered exotic in in some way, uh, it seems to hold the children's attention, particularly the nine and 10 year olds. So nine and 10-year-old poor slum children in India find it very interesting to talk to a real British granny. But that may be because of their colonial past or whatever it is, but they like it. Uh, On the other hand, English children would certainly not like a British granny from across the road. They would love to see a sari-clad Indian granny, and and I tried that as well. So so yes, it can. As far as culture goes, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm increasingly a bit disenchanted with this whole idea of our culture is being threatened by God knows what, and that we should continue to you know make fire by rubbing uh, sticks of wood together or whatever. Um, I think uh, it's time we got rid of all that. There was a question in the chat. Uh, do you know if
0: this system works with older children and adults that are afraid of computers?
1: Yes, very very good. It's, it's a question that I'm increasingly asking. I'm afraid I can't give you an, an, a proper answer right now. Uh, I'm in the middle of trying to find out. Uh, there are two or three different kinds of questions. Firstly, does it work with the post-adolescent? And secondly, will it work at the undergraduate levels in the university? Thirdly, will it work with adult learning in the work situation, and so on? Uh, The answer is, yes, it does, but to different extents and in different ways. Uh, Children who are used to this method, by the time they become adolescents, they're extremely good at it, and there's absolutely no problem. But if you you suddenly walk into a classroom full of 17-year-olds and try to do this, They're going to turn around and say, but why don't you just teach us instead of doing all this? That's because they've been conditioned into thinking that the only way to learn is where a teacher stands at the head of the class and lectures. Um, Whereas uh, children who do self-organized learning environments, they uh, have uh, one of the little girls once told me, whatever Mrs. So-and-so did for one hour, I could have done that on Google in five minutes. She may not be entirely right, but the point is that when children have that perception and if we don't address it, uh, they're not likely to engage with schooling. When it comes to adults, it's a different thing altogether. Adults, if they're strangers, if you group adults together and ask them to find the answer to anything, we'll just clam up and say, I'm not tech savvy. It's an expression of insecurity and it's a problem with the male or the human ego. Um, I'm trying to find out different ways of getting around that. But the easiest way is that if the four or five adults who are working together happen to be great friends or happen to be close colleagues, then you don't have a problem. Then nobody is worried about, you know, being foolish. So then the method does work. So, Mac, we've given you microphone privileges. Go
0: ahead and turn your mic on if you'd like to ask a question. you click on the talk button, Mac. It's at the top left of your screen. And Mac, we can see that your microphone is on, but we're not hearing you. So turn your mic off, go up to the microphone with a star, and you can do the audio setup wizard to configure your mic and come back. So Rahil, you have audio permissions. Would you like to ask a question? And my heel is about to drop off. We can see bandwidth is impacting him. So I'm going to go to Scott Edtech.
1: Scott, are you there? Yes, I'm click there.
0: on the talk button.
1: I'm there. Uh, I see Scott uh, raising his hand. Scott
0: Edtech, if you want to take the microphone, you click on the talk button at the top left. Oh no, mic. <laughs> hard to hard to ask a question without a microphone. Okay, we're going to Valerie. Valerie, you have microphone privilege. Just click on the talk button at the top left. Great. Can you hear me?
1: Yes, I can, Valerie.
0: Thank you, Dr. Mitchell. One thing that I'm um, that I'm questioning or thinking about a lot since I first saw one of your videos is that
1: third element of how students learn what to believe. And, and so many different realms of information. That is such a, it's a huge question.
0: And also because knowledge is constantly evolving, especially in the sciences, but in many many other
1: areas as well. So how do as teachers, because I think that's probably the most important and challenging um, aspect that we face. How, how do you
0: teach or how do you help students evaluate what to believe?
1: Um, Thank you. Thank you for asking that, Valerie. It is, uh, as you said, uh, the most, the single most important uh, task which I think the teacher of the future has, which is that uh, in a society where children are inundated with information, um, how do they believe? Um, uh, uh, Let me first examine a, a, a myth. There is a popular myth which says, there is, the, in, uh, the internet is full of misinformation. This is not true. I, um, I teach a class in Newcastle University and I sometimes give this as an exercise. I tell them that, well, let's say that the internet is full of misinformation. I'm going to give you 15 minutes. Find me one. Apart from religion and politics, it's very hard to find misinformation on the internet. I tell my students this, and I tell them that I would prefer to avoid those two subjects. Other than that, uh, the Internet will give you many different points of view. And surprisingly, nine-year-olds, when they work in groups and when the groups are allowed to interact, will quickly get to the central point. They never miss a beat. Sometimes they go a little ways off. As a teacher, you must continue to stand back because this is the hardest part in my method is for the teacher to stand back and not interfere because they will self-correct. And that process of self-correction is perhaps at the heart of learning. So what do I mean by a system of belief? It's very important to realize that I'm talking of a rational system of belief where you look at different sources, you learn how to evaluate, you learn how to put it together, you learn how opinions can be formed collectively through discussion and debate, rather than through doctrine. If that is taught properly, the self-organized learning environment forms a shield against the children for the rest of their lives, against beliefs without reason. And I think that is very important that they should be armed with the Sugata, so I hate
0: to do this, but we have another keynoter who is just ready to start, so we have to finish. I'm going to clap for you here. I'm hovering okay. over the smiley face, and I'm clicking on applause. I know there are lots of questions that didn't get answered. I really apologize for that. Uh, it's a delight to have you on. Thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate your being here today. Thanks everybody for coming. Don't miss Heidi Hayes Jacobs, who's starting in her room. Uh, bye bye. We we delayed later. Bye bye Sugata.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Bye.